Um, so what I want to do today is actually talk a bit about the reading. Um, I'm going to give you one more reading assignment also for next Tuesday, um, which I'll send out on latte, um, not very long. Um, but talk about a little bit about the reading. Um, in the um, um, context of Rear Window, um, which is a way of saying that we'll talk about rear window in the context of the reading, but at any rate, the philosophical issues that come up in the reading for this week, um, and that um, rear window can at least help us into, um, help us think about, um, maybe a little bit more than they would help us think about rear window. We'll talk about rear window as a movie. How many people have seen it for the first time, have just seen it for the first time? Um, and how many people have seen it before, and how many people still have to see it? Okay, well, good. Um, yeah, it's a sage nod. Um, so, the um, whether first or not first time, did you guys like it? Okay, good. <laughs> Anyone not? Anyone opposed to it? All right. Um, so, obviously... Um, as even this little um, um, advertising shot sort of icon of Rear Window shows. Um, Rear Window is a movie about looking, but it's also a movie about photography. Um, and it's a movie, unlike some other movies, about still photography rather than motion picture photography. That is to say, if you know a movie, does anyone know the movie Peeping Tom, uh, Michael Powell movie? Um, so Peeping Tom is a movie that, that comes out in 1961. It actually destroyed Michael Powell's career, and he was one of the great um, British directors of the 20th century. Um, is a movie about uh, Peeping Tom, but what he does is he has a camera with a knife on it, and what he does is he is a serial killer, and he films the people he's killing as he's killing them. So the camera and the knife are approaching them simultaneously. Um, and so close-ups, especially tracking close-ups, are fatal. Um, and so it's a very strange, voyeuristic, um, sadistic movie. Um, but that's very much a movie about movie making. Um, as you'll see when we get to Vertigo, and of course Cavell talks a little bit about Vertigo, but as you'll see when we get to Vertigo, um, the idea of the woman as a MacGuffin, the idea of a woman as a fascinating disclosure to um, what is always called the male gaze, um, as something, as someone, as an object um, for looking at by the camera, where the camera is standing for men um, looking at women. Um, Peeping Tom makes that um, an extremely literal, um, an awfully literal um, instantiation of that. But it's something that you can see to some extent in Rear Window. You will see very much in Vertigo, the question of who's doing the looking and who's being seen um, and what looking and what being looked at are about. These are issues we're going to talk about um, later on in the semester. Um, another, one other version where, I mean, there are lots of movies where filming is itself thematized. Um, movies about what it means to be filming someone. Peeping Tom is one. Um, some of you may know the movie Strange Days, Catherine Bigelow movie. Um, 
worth watching. Um, in Strange Days, it's a kind of interesting riff on Peeping Tom, which is that people are given, um, you could, people are now, apparently I saw John Stewart doing this with Google Glasses, but you can actually get the, um, uh, you get the visuals of the person that you're interacting with. So um, you crisscross with Google Glasses so you can see them looking at you, um, and they can look from, your, from the way you're looking at them if you're both wearing Google Glasses. Um, that's what Strange Days is about. That is, there's another killer who um, puts, um, who immobilizes, um, binds his victims, um, and gives them a virtual reality headset so they get to watch themselves being killed from his point of view. Um, and um, so that idea of point of view versus location in space, um, that's an idea that when you have movies about photography and movies about movies, that's an idea um, that starts arising as an issue. Um, Obviously, in Rear Window, it's not nearly that intense, but it's intense enough. Um, one way that it's intense um, is the way that the camera itself finally, at the end, becomes a weapon. How? Yeah. Yeah, but what it does is it delays him slightly. The blinding flashes, the flashbulb, um, delay him slightly, um, and therefore the light itself, which is supposed to disclose for the camera, it discloses the scene that it's photographing. For the person being photographed, um, the result is the opposite. The result is blinding rather than seeing. And for us in the movie theater, what is it? What happens during those flashes? What do we see on screen? I mean, we know what happens. That is, if you're narrating the story, it's um, Jeff is in serious trouble. Um, Thorwald is about to kill him. All he's got is his camera. He can't defend himself. He's in his cast. Um, so he starts um, flashing at Thorwald, and that slows him down just a little bit. Um, what are we seeing, though? Not what is the story, but what is it that we're seeing on screen? Yeah. <coughs> okay, so one thing it does is it discloses where he is in the room. Um, but do you remember how the shots go? Yeah. It shows Thorwald's perspective and um, that orange glow that he sees after the flashbulb goes off. Right. So we see his, we, we ourselves are given the subjective point of view of um, a flash of blindness. And then we get a quick fade into seeing where he is in the room. Um, so there's a blinding flash, and, and momentarily it's almost as though we're seeing what it is that's slowing him down, because what movies do is they show, they don't tell. Um, the famous advice to writers, show, don't tell, that's what you see at that moment. Um, we see why he's slowing down, because we can't see what's going on. We get that subjective point of view. But then there's the quick fade of the bright flash, um, the persistence of vision, um, quickly drops off, and we see where he is. We see him recovering himself, getting ready now to um, try again, and then we get another flash. Um, so that um, really kind of intricate in and out of different points of view, different subjectivities, different ideas of the relation of light to the thing seen 
um, in a very, very quick set of shots, um, we get a sense of that and get a sense possibly of um, the kind of violence that will arise later in, to some extent in Vertigo, but much more so in movies like Peeping Tom and Strange Days. Um, okay, so what I wanted to do um, to start with, um, before we look at the beginning of, um, of Rear Window, which is, we'll just look at the first few minutes of it. Um, but what I wanted to do to start with is, first of all, ask a question about um, what Bazin is saying when he's distinguishing um, three or four, it depends how you count, it depends what you're counting, um, three or four different experiences of being um, confronted with um, a narrative unfolding of events. And um, there he begins, this is part two of, um, this is the last reading that we had from him, um, from part two of What is Cinema, the chapter called Theater and Cinema. Um, he begins by distinguishing between theater and cinema, um, accepting some of the distinctions, not accepting others. Um, but he then goes on to talk about two other modes of interest in what's happening to other people, in the stories and the adventures that they're undergoing. Do you remember what they are? Not theater, not cinema, but also? Yeah. Sorry? Okay, so photography and painting, but they're not really narrative arts. Um, they are, of course, anything can be a narrative art, and photography and painting um, can be narrative arts um, in the sense, and so can sculpture, um, in the sense that you can see something is about to happen or something just has happened. Um, the example, one of the examples um, he uses is, um, is uh, Daphne turning into a laurel, being the sculpture of Daphne um, uh, Bernini's sculpture, Daphne turning into a laurel, being chased by Apollo. It's a sculpture, but we see motion within it. Um, but to actually see events unfold, not to have a moment where we can anticipate or, um, or reverse engineer what brought us to the past, but to actually see events unfold just in, in real life. Where else do we see, do we, are we aware of, are we paying attention to the unfolding of events? Yeah. Literature. Sorry? Literature. Yeah. Reading a novel is his particular example. Um, so reading a novel, but you could say any kind of attention to um, the verbal telling of a story um, where what's told is a story from, you know, tell me a story um, when a three-year-old asks for a story to um, James Joyce's Ulysses. They're all um, on a continuum of someone saying what happened rather than our seeing what happened. So now we have three different modes. We have theater, cinema, and um, narration. And we can say there's a clear and obvious um, difference between narration, verbal narration, and what theater and cinema do. Um, you can lump or you can split. Um, do people know the distinction between lumping and splitting? This is like a really important distinction for your whole life. Um, it's one that Darwin was actually the first person to um, discuss. 
Um, but uh, it becomes much more interesting um, as, a, as a way of describing intellectual styles and ways of thinking about things. And it's philosophical, so I will just tell you. Um, there are basically two ways that we can say something is something. Um, that um, 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 a person's a person, no matter how small. Um, and that is either to say something which is clearly true, which is that everything is what it is and not some other thing, to use the famous philosophical um, truism, everything is what it is and not some other thing. Um, or you can say something that isn't true. That is, if you say that two things that don't seem to be the same really are the same, um, you don't mean they're really the same. If you say, you know, Obama is Bush, for example, it's not really the case that if you go to Crawford, Texas, you'll find Obama clearing brush there and watching TV and painting himself in the bathtub. Um, what you're saying is that really their policies are so similar as um, there not being any uh, major difference between them. Um, so when so the only interesting use of the word is, you could say, um, the only interesting use of the word is, is when what you're claiming is not the strict, actual, tautological, indubitable, unshakable truth. Um, so uh, Obama is Bush is an obvious example of something that isn't true in any literal sense, and therefore it's meaningful to say it. Whether you agree with it or not, it's meaningful to say it, because things that, are, that have to be true by definition, there's nothing meaningful in asserting that they're true by definition. Um, more interesting, that is to say, um, uh, less um, provocative statements might be something like, a tomato is a fruit. Um, which is an interesting fact, um, interesting because the category of tomato and the category of fruit don't generally, um, we don't generally think of them as the same. But it's also the case that although a tomato is a fruit, not every fruit is a tomato. So um, there you, you're using the word is to say something that's biologically true, botanically true, um, to say something which nevertheless brings things together that you might not otherwise have thought of bringing together because they're not true um, simply axiomatically. You have to think about what makes them, what makes that fact true. So all truth, all true statements that we're interested in, you could say, all true statements that actually say something, what makes them say something is that there has to be something that makes those true statements true. And so when you say a true sentence that isn't um, vacuous, that isn't empty, that isn't um, utterly pointless, what you're doing actually is essentially pointing to, what makes it not pointless, is that you're pointing to whatever it is that makes something true. So if I say Obama is Bush, there are a lot of things I could be pointing to um, that would make that true, or at least that would 
um, you would be able to see why I was saying that what I thought mattered so that I thought that was a true statement, that Obama's not closing Gitmo, that Obama um, is um, as warmongering as Bush, whatever. These aren't my actual opinions. I'm just giving um, examples that you'll find everywhere, um, that Obama and Bush are both bugging us with the NSA. Um, so there are all sorts of things you could you could guess about um, what would what would make me think a statement like Obama is Bush might be a true statement. Um, what will make a tomato into a fruit? What makes that a true statement are certain facts of botany that a tomato is um, contains seeds that um, the that the way um, tomato plants reproduce is that tomatoes themselves. Um, are dropped or eaten or spread around, and the seeds within the tomatoes then grow, and that's um, how fruits work in general. Um, so, so if you hear a true statement, and if you can figure out what it is that would what would make that statement true, even if you disagree with it, if you think you know, if you think no, Obama is not Bush. Bush was driving the economy into a rut and was against health insurance and Obama is trying to get the economy out of a rut and is pro-health insurance, um, or Bush was defending us from our enemies, whereas Obama is simply selling us to our enemies. Um, this is a nonpartisan um, set of possibilities. Um, if, you, if, you don't, if you think it's not true, then what you basically are trying to figure out what it is that I am saying that I think makes it true and why I'm wrong to think that that makes it true. So any interesting sentence is one which, literally speaking, is not a tautology, is not simply saying A is A. Any interesting sentence will always have the form A is B, where A and B are not, by definition, the same. Um, so it can be an interesting fact that A is B. To take, again, a typical example from the history of philosophy, the morning star is the evening star. We know that because they're both the planet Venus. But this was not known in antiquity. It was guessed at but not known in antiquity. That Venus, that the planet Venus was the star that you would see at sunset, called the evening star, and also that the same star was the star you would see at sunrise called the morning star. So you're actually learning something by learning that the morning star is the evening star. Um, they're both a planet Venus, but nevertheless, there's a difference between them that matters. The morning star, the star we see at morning. That's what it is for us. It's not obvious by tautology that the star that we see at evening is the same star as the star that we see at, at morning. It's true in reality. It's just not true in what in our referential practices, in our use of language, until we learn that they're the same thing. Um, so that idea, the true sentences, are sentences which say that A is B, where there's some difference between what A means to us and what B means to us now leads to this really important and much easier to understand idea of lumping and splitting. So basically, there are two ways that you can make an argument. There are two standard general forms of argument 
um, that you should consider in any paper that you write, any um, um, speech that you give, any attempt to persuade someone to see something that they haven't seen. <coughs> and that's what you should always be doing in an argument, as for this class, for example. Make your reader see something that they haven't seen before. One way is to lump, and the other way is to split. What lumping is, is what you do is you say these two things that don't seem related to each other actually are really versions of the same thing. So to say Obama is Bush, that's basically lumping the two of them into a single category. Um, to say that Obama is Bush is, is an act of lumping. To say that... Um, um, trying to think of something that's not going to be particularly provocative, but the more provocative, the more interesting it is. Um, but to say, well, from the history of math, that geometry is algebra. Um, that's a major advance in the history of mathematics. The discovery, you could say, starting with Descartes. Um, you could say, um, you don't have to, but you could say the discovery starting with Descartes that geometry and algebra are really the same thing. They're not two different branches of mathematics. They're two versions of the same branch of mathematics. To, so to say that geometry is algebra is a major triumph in the history of lumping, of showing that two things that people thought were different are actually the same. Um, to say that... Um, Politic, that war is politics pursued by other means, to use um, uh, um, the famous Klaus Witzian. Do people know that famous statement, war is politics pursued by other means? That's Klaus Witz's most famous quotation. Um, that really all wars have political ends. Um, those political ends are what you need to analyze if you ask why a war is occurring, what is the politics behind the war. So um, to make it a little bit oversimplified, war is politics. Um, to say that, um, again, is to lump, is to say two things that look different, war, which is violence, and politics, which is um, a kind of game playing, know that those two things are exactly the same. Um, so lumping is one powerful way of coming up with an insight that people haven't had before. Um, that insight is to lump. Another way you can do it is the converse, or the reverse, which is to split. And what splitting is, is you take two things that look really similar to each other, and you say, actually, they're very, very different. And once you see the difference between these two things, um, you will um, get a huge insight into some truth about the world, about reality, about yourself, or whatever. Um, so again, a really interesting example in the history of science, let's say, of splitting, is the first discovery by astronomers that planets and stars are different. That is, that you look up in the sky and you see these little lights in the sky, and um, most people don't 
notice the difference, couldn't tell the difference between seeing Venus or Jupiter and Mars in the sky or seeing Sirius or Alpha Centauri. They might notice a difference in brightness, but um, what they'll see is stars. Um, and they'll think, okay, stars, they're um, all examples of the same thing. And then astronomers noticed that there's a difference between some of those lights in the sky, not many of them, but some, um, a total of seven, I believe, originally, um, some of those lights in the sky, and the thousands of other lights. And the difference was that the planets would change their position compared to most of the other stars. That if you looked at the stars, mostly you could find one star by looking because it would always be in the same place in a pattern. That pattern is the pattern of constellations. You could see a constellation, and the stars would always be in the same place in that pattern. But there were some stars that would always be moving through those patterns if you looked at them over the course of a year, or even of a month, or even of a week. And so they started splitting the stars that were fixed and the stars that wandered. And that required a huge insight into things that looked exactly the same unless you paid exquisite attention. And when you played ex paid exquisite attention, you would see a difference. So that is progress not by way of lumping, but by way of splitting. Noticing differences where people thought they had seen the same thing. For Darwin, again, this is really important because it was about the classification of species. That is, there are species that don't look at all alike, but in fact are, so that we can say whales are really wolves, which they are. Um, if we're lumpers, whales and wolves are um, very, very close to each other on, um, on a um, taxonomic tree. Um, or we can split and we can say there's actually all the difference in the world between... Um, a bat and a bird. That is, they look kind of similar. They're flying things that um, um, can navigate the skies and, um, and dive at their prey from the skies, and yet they're very different from each other. So bats and birds discovering their difference is splitting. Um, wolves and whales and discovering their similarity is lumping. Um, dinosaurs and birds discovering, as we're now the politically correct animal types are supposed to say, um, that uh, you talk about, when you're talking about T-Rex or um, Brachiosaurus or whatever, the proper name for them is non-avian dinosaurs because avian dinosaurs are all around us now and we call them birds, but what they really are are avian dinosaurs. Um, so lumping and splitting um, are ways of noticing something you didn't know. Um, they're ways of relating to things either by saying they're more similar than you would ever have guessed or they're more different than you would ever have guessed, and both of those yield insight. So if we're lumping and splitting, end of long excursus on this, but this is something that will serve you all your lives, um, serve you well all your lives, and also the meta question now that you have to ask yourself is, is lumping like splitting? or are lumping and splitting completely different kinds of things to do? That is, do you want to lump lumping with splitting, or do you want to split splitting from lumping? Um, nevertheless, this will be helpful to you um, in 
all attempts to come up with arguments. Um, it's a really helpful category. Now, if we're lumping and splitting, because that's what Bezon is doing, if we're lumping and splitting, what you can say is that there's an obvious way to lump theater and film together and to split them off from literary narrative, from verbal narrative. That is, there are three kinds of narrative, and we, there's a clear split, you could say, between um, novels, which is Besson's example, on the one hand, and film and theater on the other hand. But you can also split film and theater. Um, how does he split them, or what kinds of splits is he interested in? Yes. The audience's interaction. Audience's interaction with what's really going on. He says that the audiences see themselves in the eyes of the hero when they see a movie. Uh-huh. But they envy the hero when they see a play. Okay, so there's an audience interaction <coughs> with the characters whose lives, whose stories they're watching. And in a theater, um, the audience interaction is with people who are present to the audience. That is, they're really there. Um, everything, he begins by quoting someone as saying, everything in theater can be illusion except the presence of the actor. That's the one illusion that you don't get in the theater. That's not an illusion. The actor is really there. Whereas in movies, the actor is not there. In movies, um, the presence of the actor is an illusion. So the crucial difference, one crucial difference, which has consequences and consequences that you're describing, one crucial difference is that in theater, um, the actor is there, and in movies, the actor is not there. Um, and therefore, you may want, and he does want, now to lump movies with novels. That is, it's an obvious split. The obvious lumping is theater and movies versus a split from novels. But there's a way now to lump movies and novels and split them from theater. What is that way? Even if you haven't read it, you should be able to say it. Yeah. Right. In novels, the people depicted there, depicted are not actually there either. Um, in both cases, a person is sitting in a room and is paying attention to a narrative, a series of narrative incidents and events that are happening or have happened or are imagined as happening to someone who isn't there. Um, so that's a crucial difference. Now, he does give a fourth category, a really interesting fourth category, besides movies, novels, and let's say, uh, sorry, movies, novels, and theater, there's a fourth category of narrative, which comes as a little bit of a surprise because what he's doing there is splitting where no one else would have thought to split. It comes in a footnote. Does anyone remember? Can you guess? This is, the, this is the place where you have to be clever by saying, oh, well, of course, I haven't done the reading, but it's so obvious. I will just say, 
No, that I mean, it, it, you could split that, but that's not what that's not the one he actually does. But yeah, you could say there's a difference between um, hearing your mother tell you a story when you're going to bed, um, which is very different from reading a story um, yourself. Yeah, I, uh, um, that might start going where narrative starts becoming theatricalized. Um, but he, but he has yet another category. TV, television, and in particular, live television, which is what television is in the 1950s when he's writing this. So if you guys ever watch The Honeymooners or um, any 1950s TV, um, they originally were TV broadcasts of performances occurring right there. Um, in fact, when I was in high school, soap operas, um, which was all you could watch on daytime TV, it was just terrible, um, all you could watch on daytime TV if you were sick and you got to stay home all day, but it turned out to be really boring after Jeopardy. Jeopardy was at 1130, it was over at noon, and then all there was were soap operas. Those soap operas were still done live when I was in high school, um, and that wasn't that long ago. I mean, maybe you think it was, but it really wasn't. Um, they were still done live. And so what you were watching were people acting in front of a camera. In one way, it's like theater, which is that um, you're, you're seeing a live performance. But in another way, it's like movies, which is that they don't see you. They're not present to you. There's no give and take as there is in um, an actual theater. So if you go to um, page 97 of Theater and Cinema, part two, um, he writes in a footnote there, television naturally adds a new variant to the pseudo-presences resulting from the scientific techniques for reproduction created by photography. On the little screen during live television, the actor is actually present in space and time. So there's still live television. Some of you will no doubt watch live television on Sunday evening um, because sporting events are live. Um, on the little screen during live television, the actor is actually present in space and time. But the reciprocal actor-spectator relationship is incomplete in one direction. The spectator sees without being seen. There is no return flow. Televised theater, therefore, seems to share something both of theater and of cinema. Of theater, because the actor is present to the viewer. Of cinema, because the spectator is not present to the actor. Nevertheless, this state of not being present is not truly an absence. The television actor has a sense of the millions of ears and eyes virtually present and represented by the electronic camera. This abstract presence is most noticeable when the actor fluffs, that is, blows his lines. Painful enough in the theater, it is intolerable on television since the spectator who can do nothing to help him is aware of the unnatural solitude of the actor. In the theater, in similar circumstances, a sort of understanding exists with the audience, which is a help to an actor in trouble. This kind of reciprocal relationship is impossible on television. So I think that's a pretty deep footnote. That is that um, what we're getting here is a further splitting. There's a splitting between theater and cinema, 
and a further splitting in um, between them in the way television is in some ways like one and some ways like another and therefore is itself split down the middle as partly theatrical and partly cinematic. Now the reason I wanted to start with this is to ask um, about Rear Window, um, which of these modes is, does Rear Window seem to be most thematizing? The obvious thing to say about Rear Window is that it's a movie about movies. That is that what you have is um, Jeff watching through windows what's going on in other lives and other worlds. Um, and the movies are some of them silent and some of them um, not silent. But what you have is a series of frames in which he's watching what's going on across a boundary. Um, and again, that's something Bezant talks about, are those boundaries. Um, and um, for Bezant, that's something he lumps, by the way, that the boundaries are what make film like theater. Um, that there's a boundary between the audience and the actors on stage. So um, if you had to decide which mode of um, presentation of story Rear Window is thematizing, um, which of the three would you put, or would you come up with a fourth? We can come up with a fourth today, of course, with the Internet um, and the very idea of windows. Um, but which would you say Rear Window is about? Is it about theater? Is it about film? Is it about television? Yeah. Um, for me, I always thought it was mostly television. Why? Uh, just like the way you can place her in different uh, windows, like window to window, I kind of uh, saw it as channel surfing almost. Yeah. Okay, so for one thing, it has that channel surfing um, um, feel to it. Um, that he looks from window to window, he looks from story to story, he gets bored with one, he goes to another. Um, television is just coming in at the time. Yeah. It's also... Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, I, I didn't, but I mean, I, did, I, I said it wasn't an option for Hitchcock, but go ahead. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so there is a kind of clicking on a link um, aspect to it. That is, he gets interested in something, and Hitchcock's camera will um, 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 cooperate. Um, so he gets interested in something, and we'll look at it, and we'll look at it more closely. So it's like he has a bunch of open tabs, and he will look at one tab, and then he'll click on links within that tab. Yeah, that's nice. That's good. Yeah. Right. Uh, when he watches the lights go off and someone's being killed and things like that, he can't do anything about it. Yeah. So he can't help, he can't be involved in, he's forced simply into the position of a watcher, a voyeur sometimes. Um, that's, that's what uh, Thelma Ritter says about him. Um, what will happen to peeping Toms, what happened to them in the past when they had their eyes burnt out, um, how he might be sent into jail where, they'll, where there won't be even any windows. Um, he can look, but he can't intervene, or at least it appears that he can't intervene. Yeah. Um, 
have like television Okay, so um, they so they don't know they're being watched, um, and um, they're doing a live performance, um, not knowing that they're being watched by him, um, and um, the fact that it's a live performance—that is, that there are no retakes, which is crucial to film—that um, you can retake a shot if you get it wrong somehow. That. Um, it's much less nerve-wracking. And um, interviews with actors say this. That is, that actors who have to act on stage or live TV um, find it harder because they don't feel that they have the same um, um, margin for error. If you, if you spaz a shot in a movie, so they shoot it again. Big deal. Um, a movie camera doesn't seem as intrusive, doesn't seem as demanding as a TV camera does, um, or as a live audience does. But a TV camera, in a sense, is the worst of all worlds, because it's demanding and it's representing millions of people instead of just hundreds of people. Um, it's, and you're alone, so you don't get the help of those people the way you do in theater. If you, if you flub a line in theater, um, you can tell that the audience has goodwill towards you. You know, yeah, people flub lines. We get it. Um, but if you flub a line in front of this kind of HAL-like glowing camera, then <coughs> it's flubbed forever, and um, the thing watching you does not have goodwill towards you. Um, yeah, I was going to say, uh, another television aspect is um, one of the earlier scenes, like censorship. We're just watching the married couple. They close the window. Yeah. Everything else happens. Right. Kind of cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Din. Uh, to me, it feels a little like uh, that, like new age, choose your own ending, like live theaters. Because I mean, ultimately, he does become involved and does become like somewhat interactive, and people are authentic and real right in front of him. Yeah. Um, so unlike in TV, TV, it becomes a little bit more like Poltergeist, which is that he can enter the world of TV. Um, well, it's not really TV, but I think TV is on Hitchcock's mind. Um, TV, as I say, is starting to challenge movies, and um, movie studios are really freaking out um, that TV is going to destroy the movie industry. Um, and it's, so it's an issue at the time. 54 is just when it's becoming an issue. Yeah. Okay, good. So that so that he's updating Grace Kelly. He's updating um, those around him. We have a whole bunch of stories, um, not only in an A and a B narrative, but it's more like an A through G narrative. Um, some of them are um, central, like um, Thorwald and his wife. Some of them are important and turn out to be much more important than you think they will, like what Miss Lonely Hearts is going to do. Um, she herself, if you think about it, is acting for herself. That is, she imagines she's giving herself a completely private performance of what? Well, before her death, of what? A date. Of a date, yeah. That is that um, she's pantomiming um, her fantasy of having a date with someone, um, and she thinks this performance is completely private, um, but it's not. It's being observed, being observed by several. 
And then it turns out that's not just a funny kind of thing. It turns out that that is um, the life that they can save. Um, he fails to save. He doesn't save uh, the life of Thorwald's wife, but he does save, they do save her life. Um, okay, good. Yeah. Um, yes? Yeah. No, we did, but yeah, yeah go on. Yeah. So when he uses the camera to watch, um, when he uses telephoto lenses, when um, that's part of the internet idea of it, um, that there's a further mediation, which is that he controls the camera. Um, he doesn't control what's seen, but he controls the way to see it, and he does it from his own house. He's trapped in his house. Um, the way people who, when they're trapped in their houses, spend all their time watching TV, um, and um, that's what he's doing. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. But then in the end, it sort of transitions into theater in the sense that once Starwald knows that he's watching and what he did wrong in the past, like he knows that everything has been watched. He has to sort of adjust his performance to save his ass from the police. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that's happening then is what looks like a stable category of of spectator and those being watched turns out not to be stable in Rear Window. Um, That is, the setup is a stable setup. Um, A person looking out his window <coughs> and into what um, other people's windows to see what they're doing. But not only their windows, what's going on in the backyard, what's going on at the end of the alley, and so on. Yeah, Elias. And then, like, the other thing, though, is, like, it, it, it definitely changes so much, like, up and before that point and then up until that point, like, in moving towards greater interaction. Uh-huh. Like, where at the beginning, I think it is, like, the most, like, TV, and, like, even talks about it, like, TV, I think, is he was he'll like ask questions and they'll be like well, why do you even care you know and he's like well don't you want to know this information like television like a TV show but then he increases his interaction yeah so it finally isn't like that at all and like yeah comes in the room. so yeah. it's like this transition as he becomes more as he interacts with him more it becomes more yeah, and if, if you think about how that's working again in the sort of um, progression of, um, of um, schemes, uh, the progression of setups within the movie, first there's pure watching. Then there is a breaching of the frame or of the, of the barrier um, between the viewers and those viewed when Grace Kelly goes to Thorwald's apartment. And now she is aware of him watching her and she can communicate with him. But he can't communicate back. So he sees terrible things happening. There's nothing he can do about it. Um, But in the meantime, she is performing specifically for him, not for um, this terrifying and and, um, completely clinical camera, but for him. Um, as she's waving to him from across the way. Um, and then, but once that possibility of breaching the boundary is established by 
his team going into that space, the problem is it can now go the other way. And someone from that space, Thorwald, can go into his. Yeah. You know, there's like a certain irony where the more involved he becomes, the more powerless he is. Yes. So the more involved he becomes, the more powerless he is. Or another way to put it might be, um, or the same way to put it might be, um, that the um, his powerlessness is um, precisely the mode of his involvement. That is that, um, well, maybe it's the same, it, it, we could put it both ways at once, which is he's, he is so involved because he's powerless. Uh, because he can't remember what he says about Kashmir. Um, he wants to go because he says um, that's, that would be something to see. And the whole movie is about, about things to see. But he imagines that if he had absolute freedom of motion, if he could be a person who could go anywhere in the world and could see the people trapped in the violence of the places in the world where they are, he would be the free-ranging spectator of all those things. But it turns out that what it means for him to be a spectator is precisely not to be free-ranging, but to be fixed in place and unable to move, unable to determine um, any motion, any range of motion on his own. Um, yeah? Uh, I also see some of the theatrical elements involving the music, like the, the band players, um, uh-huh. in a way that, because it's a lot of diegetic sound, yeah. it's kind of like a pit band when you're at a play, and you can see the band from you. Right. Um, and also, when Jeffries is looking through the binoculars in his apartment, the way that he only gets really that one uh, perspective, the one view of outside of his apartment and just into the windows of the other apartments, is as if someone sitting in the theater using binoculars just sees the set of the play. They're not able to actually see. We don't see what Grace <coughs> Kelly sees from Thorold's apartment looking back at Jeffries. We don't see at a theater the actors on stage, what they see looking back at us. Right, exactly. Um, unlike what you get in the camera. So let's just watch the opening scene um, just to see something about uh, the, the real trickiness and subtlety um, with which Hitchcock is using... Um, the camera. So, can we just hit play? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's motel. Who knew?
kind of exposition of the space of the courtyard. People getting dressed. Early morning. The milkman has just delivered milk. So that tells us it's early morning. Or that confirms it's early morning. So now we get non-diegetic sound. Presumably the clock radio, that was a clock radio that wakes him, that goes off with men are you over 40, but he's already shaving. is also the cast of people he's watching. The whole cast of the movie. Gunnison, how did you ever get to be such a big editor with such a small memory? Thrift, industry, and hard work. And uh, catching the publisher with the secretary. Did I get the wrong day? No. No, wrong week. Next Wednesday, I emerge from this plaster cocoon. Oh, that's too bad. Well, I guess I can't be lucky every day. Can I call? Yeah, I sure feel sorry for you, Gossip. Must be rough on you, thinking me wearing this cast for another whole week. Well, that one week is going to cost me my best photographer, and you a big assignment. Well, where? Well, there's no point in even talking about it. No, come on, come on, where? Cashmere. Got a code tip from the bureau chief this morning. The place is about to go up in smoke. Uh, what did I tell you? Yeah, Didn't I tell you that's the next place to watch? You did. Okay, when do I leave? Half hour, hour. With that cast on? You don't. Oh, stop sounding stuffy. I can take pictures from a Jeep or a water buffalo for this thing. You're too valuable to the magazine for us to play around with. I'll send Morgan or Lambert. Morgan or Lambert, that's fine. I get myself half killed for you and you reward me by stealing my assignments. I didn't ask you to stand in the middle of that automobile racetrack. You asked for a, something dramatically different. You got it. 
So did you. Goodbye, Jeff. Now, wait a minute, Gunnison. Now, you, you've got to get me out of here. Six weeks sitting in a two-room apartment with nothing to do but look out the window at the neighbors. Goodbye, Jeff. Now, Gunnison, I... If you don't pull me out of this swamp of boredom, I'm going to do something drastic. Like what? Like what? I'm going to get married, and then I'll never be able to go anywhere. It's about time you got married, before you turn into a lonesome and bitter old man. Yeah, yeah, you just see me rushing home to a hot apartment to listen to the automatic laundry and the electric dishwasher and the garbage disposal the nagging wife. Jeff, wives don't nag anymore. They discuss. That's so. That's so. Well, maybe in the high rent district they discuss. In my neighborhood they still nag. Yeah. Well, uh, you know best. Call you later, Jeff. Yeah, have some good news next time, huh? Okay, we can stop there for now. <laughs> Looks like a good expression to stop on. Um, um, <laughs> all right, a couple of things to notice about that. One is that the first one of the important things that Hitchcock is doing as far as um, the presentation of this movie is he's making it sometimes ambiguous or setting up an ambiguity that's going to matter later on in the movie as to whether camera is objective or subjective. That is the first thing we see and if you're, if, again, if you're coming into Rear Window after watching the second... <coughs> Half, you won't be um, nearly as aware of this, but the first thing that we see is not what Jeff is seeing. It is pretty much what he might see if he were looking, but we first see him asleep. Everyone is asleep, but now everyone else is waking up um, because it's morning and time to wake up and do your calisthenics and um, put your tie on on the fire escape and wake up on the fire escape because it's so hot. Um, the rest of the cast of um, this little drama is waking up, but he's still asleep. And he's fallen asleep in his wheelchair, um, and he's sweating, but asleep. And everything we've seen, we've seen through objective camera, including him. One reason that Rear Window can't, at least this set, can't be the set of a play is that we are sometimes seeing what Jeff sees. That is, we are sometimes sitting with him, you could say, at least perspectively, and we're sometimes sitting across from him. That is, seeing him as the actor um, or the character in the play. So the place, the movie starts off giving us a perspective from his room, but and therefore on the whole stuff that he could see, but it isn't what he does see because he's asleep. Then, when he's on the phone, we're obviously seeing from his perspective and seeing what he does see. So we're moving in and out of objective and subjective camera. 
Sometimes the camera is showing what Jeffrey sees, what Jeff sees. Sometimes it's showing us what we can see, but what he can't. This is something that Hitchcock loves. Um, that is um, uh, the distinction and also the um, blurring or the hiding of a distinction um, between objective and subjective camera. Uh, but that really matters because it goes to one of the issues that um, Bazin is talking about, which is the difference between identification, and, and people brought this up at the very start, the difference between identification and non-identification is a difference, again, between theater and film. So um, do people remember how that works? Which, according to Bazin, which of the two allows for identification and which doesn't? Okay, well, this is worth looking at as well. Um, so this is um, on page 98 of What is Cinema is um, where he starts talking about this. Um, but on page 99, um, <coughs> he talks about a 1937 article which says, and he quotes it, the characters on the screen are quite naturally objects of identification, while those on the stage are rather objects of mental opposition. So on screen, the claim is that we can identify with characters on screen. I myself am dubious of the very concept of identification, but let's um, at least uh, follow this split um, that, um, that is being, that, whose exposition we're getting here. Um, the characters on screen are rather objects of, sorry, the characters on screen are quite naturally objects of identification, while those on the stage are rather objects of mental opposition, because their real presence gives them an objective reality. And to transpose them into beings in an imaginary world, the will of the spectator has to intervene actively that is to say, to will to transform their physical reality into an abstraction. So that's a pretty amazing thing to say, because in a sense what Rosencrantz, the guy he's quoting, is saying is that um, plays are a whole lot weirder than movies as a human experience and as narrative experience. We tend to think our own sort of naive history naive and chronologically accurate history of narrative is, so there were plays, people would play act scenes and audiences would really get into that and then eventually they started filming plays and that was the origin of movies. <coughs> um, so plays are the obvious thing on which movies are based and then movies take on a history and a technique and an artistic vocation of their own but um, they originate in the idea of plays. And what's being suggested here is something quite different, which is that plays are the really, really strange aesthetic experience. That is that you see real people who you know are not the people that they are pretending to be, that they are play acting. They are real people who are right there, and yet we are supposed to see them as imaginary beings in a story that is not, in fact, real, not, in fact, true, not, in fact, taking place there. So 
our natural response in theater is to be saying, look, we're looking at real people. And it takes work not to see them as real people. Um, of course they're real. So our natural instinctive response, therefore, to watching real people is to think of them as people in our world, people we're interacting with. And so if you're watching, again, let's just take this as um, a specimen story, because it's what so many plays and movies are about, which is um, boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, um, things go wrong, and then either they go right and we have a comedy, or they don't go right and we have a tragedy. Um, if that is, let's just say, a schematic kind of description of a huge number of dramatic situations or of dramatic expositions, dramatic stories, um, what a playwright has to do is make the audience like both boy and girl and somehow make the audience like them enough that um, the audience is interested in at least one of them, or every audience member is interested in at least one of them erotically, and yet like them not so much that they'll be jealous of the other one. That is to say, you go see a play and you go see an actor or actress who you find really hot, um, there is a danger that you're going to resent the person that they're in the love story with on stage. That is, why is she interested in him when I'm sitting right here in the front row? Now, obviously, you don't think that explicitly, but there is a sense in which what you're, you feel much more voyeuristic at a play because you're watching people you're interested in in a way that in real life can feel a little bit estranging. That is the experience of going to a party where you're interested in someone, but, oh no, they're talking to that other person, and oh look, they're laughing and they're having a good time with that other person, and maybe I should just go up and try to be charming, but I can already tell that I'll be a douchebag if I do that, and it's why did I come to this party anyhow? So that experience of party going, you've never had it? No, I thought you did. Um, that experience of party going, that's the risk of a play. It's not a risk in a movie. There's no time, no place, no moment in a movie where you're thinking, well, you know, maybe I should go join them and tell them the joke that I heard yesterday, and that'll get him to be really interested in me instead of in her. And that would be good. Um, just can't happen. So the vocabulary that Rosencrantz and Besson are using for that is a vocabulary of identification. The idea is that in a play, we are never seeing what a character on stage is seeing. We never have a stage character's point of view. We are always seeing it from a third perspective. Whereas in a movie, we do get that character's point of view. We do get to see what Jeff is seeing. 
in a play, again, just think of um, the erotic possibilities of um, being a peeping Tom. So in a play, someone stoops at a keyhole and looks through the keyhole, and we don't get to see, we don't get to see what they're looking at. In a movie, if someone stoops at a keyhole and looks through a keyhole, we're looking forward to the next shot, which is what they'll see through the keyhole. So movies give you the possibility of seeing with and as a character, and plays don't. Now again, of course you can find exceptions that at least test the rule, but that's a huge and general distinction is that in a play, all the people on stage are present to you as people who are not you. In a movie, not all the people on screen or in a scene have to be present to you. In a shot with two people, only one person has to be on camera, and you can see as the other person is seeing. And that makes a big difference. In this movie, Hitchcock is playing with those distinctions and those differences. Okay, we will pick up with this on Tuesday. As I say, there's, um, if, as is so obvious, you're keeping up with the reading, there's not that much more reading to do for Tuesday, but I'm going to add one more thing. And um, if you're not keeping up with the reading, remember that there is going to be some testing um, via quizzes that matter in this class. Okay, have a good weekend. See you on Tuesday.